I asked you to turn to Mark chapter 9, but we're not going to read that passage just yet. But today we're observing Sukkot, a seven, eight-day festival that rounds out the Jewish calendar of festival activities. There is so much to be said about Sukkot. We almost need like a series of messages that reflect on this particular holy day that is given by God to the people of Israel. And there are so many passages that refer to this festival. If we go back into the Mosaic law, we see that Sukkot is mentioned in Leviticus chapter 23 in that great chapter of God's seven specific festivals that he's given to Israel. And we know that the first four festivals found in Leviticus chapter 23 had their observance during the springtime in the year, beginning with Passover, including the Feast of Unleavened Bread, including the Feast of First Fruits, and then Shavuot or Pentecost, the Feast of Weeks. All four of those festivals transpire within a 50-day period of time. And from a prophetic point of view, all of those passages deal with the redemptive ministry of our Messiah. Passover enables us to reflect on Yeshua, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. When we observe the Feast of Unleavened Bread, we remember that Messiah was unleavened. He was sinless, as leaven in Scripture symbolizes sin. We know that on the third day of Passover, the Feast of First Fruits, when all the Jewish people are bringing in their harvest and representing that with one-tenth, they represent before God everything they own belongs to him. But this is one-tenth acknowledging that reality and thanking the Lord for what we have. We're reminded of Yeshua's resurrection on that very occasion. And as he ascends into the very presence of God, he represents all those who have placed their faith and trust in him. And then some 50 days later, as Messiah promised, he would grant us a special measure of his spirit who would not only be with us, he said, but would be in us. And so on Shavuot, the Feast of Weeks, the Spirit of God descends, and thus the redemptive ministry of Messiah is encapsulated in these four festivals with respect to his first coming. When we come into the fall months of the Jewish calendar, we celebrate the final three observances. The Feast of Trumpets, which today we acknowledge as Rosh Hashanah, the head of the year, and the blowing of the shofar, which we participated in. And I was very grateful at how God granted me grace in the blowing of the shofar, you know came out pretty good, not too bad. In fact, we should do that every week just to stay in practice. You know. But the blowing of the shofar reminds us that when the Messiah returns, he's going to gather his people from the four corners of the earth. Yeshua tells us that in Matthew chapter 24, where it says he will send out his angels and with the trump of God, gather the Jewish people who have been scattered to the four corners of the earth into the land of Israel in preparation for our Messiah's return. We're also reminded that in the Brit HaDashah, we're told a unique event will take place with the blowing of the trumpet of God and the dead in Messiah will rise first and then we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them to meet him in the clouds. And thus we shall ever be 
And therefore, Paul tells us to comfort one another with those wonderful words. And so the Feast of Trumpets reminds us of God's blessing upon us, his coming to reign, his catching up of believers, which is followed then by Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, the time when God's judgment would be uh, placed upon the variety of animals that would be sacrificed to cover temporarily the sins of Israel. For as the writer to the Hebrews has said, that if the blood and, of bulls and goats could take away sin, there would be no need to repeat that every year or every week. But the fact of the matter is, Yom Kippur without Messiah's atoning work is a day, but not a day of atonement. It is only a day of atonement when we acknowledge the atonement Messiah or the Lord has provided in Messiah's death. And it anticipates that day when the judgment of God will be poured out on the nations of the world. And it is followed by Sukkot, the Feast of Tabernacles, which is a festival that draws our attention to the coming of the Messiah and his reign over the earth. That's Leviticus 23. And there are many other passages we could look at. You could go to Deuteronomy chapter 16, and you will find that it is one of the three pilgrimage festivals that was given to Israel. And all Jewish males, 21 and up, were to come up to the temple to offer up the sacrifices to the Lord. In Jewish tradition, 70 sacrifices were offered up on this occasion. Because in Genesis chapter 10, 70 nations are listed And from a Jewish point of view, it represents the nations of the world. And so on Sukkot, atonement is provided not only for Israel, but for the nations of the world as well. One could turn to Zechariah chapter 14, and you would find in that latter portion of that particular prophetic writing that when the Messiah comes and establishes his kingdom on earth, a number of festivals will continue to be observed, but in Zechariah chapter 14, it is the festival of tabernacles that will be observed once again. And the scripture tells us that that nation that does not come up to celebrate the Lord, there will be no rain provided for that nation. Because on Sukkot, which is in the fall of the year, the Jewish people are praying for rain. And they're praying that the Lord will provide both the former and latter rains, early and later rains, rains during the time of the fall and then later rains during the winter and spring months, that they might have an overwhelming crop that the Lord would provide for his people. On this particular occasion, there are unique ceremonies that are observed. So in the first century, there were these menorahs, candelabras like we have here, seven branch candelabras that stood tall in the courtyard of the women. And the young priests in training were given ladders that were leaned up against these menorahs. And they would climb these ladders and each one would carry some 15 gallons of oil. And they would pour the oil into the bowls on top of the seven-branched menorahs. And then the priests would take the old Levitical priestly garments that were being worn out. And they'd place them in the bowls as wicks. And then those bowls would be lit. 
And thus it is said that there was such a light in Jerusalem when those menorahs were lit that it would light up the entire city. And that it was such a glorious occasion and celebrative occasion when this occurred that the rabbi said, he who has not observed Sukkot does not know what joy is. And thus the light is lighting up and it was on this occasion, Yeshua stands up in John chapter eight and says, I am the light of the world. And he does that specifically to make that association. That as Israel is looking to the light representing God's presence among his people, Yeshua is saying, I am here. And his presence is now most fully manifested than at any other time in history. On the same occasion, around the altar in the court of the men, they would take the lulav branches. We have one here, and I'll talk about that in a moment. And they would set up a tabernacle structure over the altar. And they would offer up the sacrifices under the mini sukkah established on the altar. On the last day of the Feast of Tabernacles, these podiums or these, um, what do you call those things that you set up alongside of a house that people climb up to paint the house? Scaffolding. They would set up these scaffolding. Sounds like is something like. They'd set up these scaffolding on the sides of the altar. And they'd have these silver tubes that were erected. And a group of priests would head out the southern gate of Jerusalem, known as the water gate. When I was in Maryland, used to make a big deal over that. But out of the water gate, I am not a crook out of the water, just trying to give you a little help, that's all. And then outside the southern gate, down to the Hezekiah's Tunnel, and Hezekiah's Tunnel flows out to the Pool of Siloam. And from there, the priests would dip some jars into the pool, and they'd take out some water. And in a procession, as they would be singing the Psalms of Ascent, they would ascend back up into the temple and they would march into the court of the men. Other priests were circling the altar, waving the lulav branches as they would circle the altar. Priests were singing the psalms of ascent. And one set of priests would go up the scaffolding to pour water down one of the silver tubes. Another set of priests would go up the other scaffolding And they would take wine with them, a symbol of joy. And they would pour it out along the other set of tubes, or that other set of silver tubings. And it would flow out to the base of the altar. And as the wine and as the water was being poured out, prayers were being offered for rain. And Isaiah chapter 12 was recited, which would say from the, out from the pools of salvation, we dwell, we draw water out of the pools of salvation. So the Jewish people would be praying for rain. But the Jewish rabbis also taught it wasn't enough just to have water fall from the skies, but we needed to walk in obedience to him. And thus we needed the spirit of God poured out upon us. And thus as they prayed for rain, they prayed that the spirit of the Lord would be poured out on the people of Israel. And as a result of that pouring, they would be made 
a people righteous before God. So in John chapter 8, when Yeshua is celebrating Feast of Tabernacles in the temple, it says on the great day of the feast, that last day when all of these events were going on as I described, it says Yeshua stood up and with a loud voice, I always love that little phrase because we always think of Yeshua as the good shepherd that sort of coddles the sheep and speaks softly and nicely to us and leads us beside the still waters. But on that occasion, he raised his voice and he shouted out with a loud voice. If any man is thirsty, let him come unto me and drink. For out of his belly shall flow rivers of living water. And so John then tells us, and this he spoke of the Spirit, which was not yet given, because Yeshua was not yet glorified. So as the Jewish people are crying out for the Spirit of God, Messiah stands up and says, I'm here to provide him for you. And all one has to do is to drink me in. All one has to do is to come unto me. All one has to do is to say, Lord, I acknowledge you're the one that can give me this kind of drink from which I will never need to thirst again. All we have to do is to do what he said, come unto me. And all of eternal life is provided for us. Is that not amazing? Just to come to him. And life eternal is what we receive. I think that's a bargain. I think that is something that we should be saying, sign me up. And we should be saying, Gary, man, forget about the rest of the message. Pray for me that the Lord would now come into my life. Because that's what Yeshua said. As all this is going on, if anyone anyone is thirsty, come to me and drink. But I don't want to speak from any of those passages. What I want to draw our attention to is found in Mark chapter 9. You guys didn't have anything planned, right? Like this is, you know, I'm just, just wondering. But in Mark chapter 9, here's another one of those Feast of Tabernacle passages. And the text says, in chapter 9, verse 2, after six days, Yeshua took Peter, James, and John, and with him led them up a high mountain where they were all alone. There he was transfigured before them. His clothes became dazzling white, whiter than anyone in the world could bleach them. And there appeared before them Elijah and Moses who were talking with Yeshua. Peter said to Yeshua, Rabbi, it is good for us to be here. Let us put up three booths, one for you, one for Moses, One for Elijah. He did not know what to say. They were so frightened by what they saw. 
Then a cloud appeared and enveloped them. And a voice came from the cloud. This is my son, whom I love. Listen to him. Suddenly, when they looked around, they no longer saw anyone with them except Yeshua. Now, that's not the only passage where this is described. Take a look at Matthew and turn to chapter 17. And in verse 1, Matthew writes, After six days, Yeshua took with him Peter, James, and John, the brother of James, and led them up to a high mountain by themselves. There he was transfigured before them. His face shone like the sun. His clothes became as white as the light. And just then there appeared before them Moses and Elijah talking with Yeshua. Peter said to Yeshua, Lord, it is good for us to be here. If you wish, I will put up three booths, one for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah. And while he was still speaking, a bright cloud enveloped them, and a voice from the cloud said, This is my son, whom I love. With him I am well pleased. Listen to him. And a third reference is found in Luke's account. If you turn to Luke chapter 9. Looking at verse 28, we're told about eight days after Yeshua said this, the words that preceded, he took Peter, Peter, John, and James with him and went up onto a mountain to pray. As he was praying, the appearance of his face changed. His clothes became as bright as a flash of lightning. Two men, Moses and Elijah, appeared in glorious splendor talking with Yeshua. They spoke about his departure, which he was about to bring to fulfillment at Jerusalem. Peter and his companions were very sleepy, but when they became fully awake, they saw his glory and the two men standing with him. As the men were leaving Yeshua, Peter said to him, Master, it is good for us to be here. Let us put up three booths, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. He did not know what he was saying. And while he was speaking, a cloud appeared, enveloped them, and they were afraid as they entered the cloud. A voice came from the cloud saying, This is my son whom I have chosen. Listen to him. There's a lot of similarities in each one, but there are some differences and some distinctions. I love what Mark says. Yeshua was so dazzling white that his clothes and his countenance was white, bleached whiter than any bleach could bleach white any garment. And I like what, I don't know, was it Matt? Now I get confused. Matthew or Luke said it was like a flash of lightning. Another one said it was so dazzling white, it was like the sun shining in its glory. Messiah says that when he comes again, when he was asked by the high priest, are you indeed the Messiah of Israel? Yeshua said, yes, I am. And when you see me again, I will come in the clouds of heaven with great power and glory. This was a little foretaste of what that glory meant. And what he will be like when he appears as the glorious King Messiah of Israel. It's also interesting that when they are gathered, 
there's Moses and Elijah at his right hand and left. How did they know it was Moses and Elijah? They had never seen him before. They were dead for thousands of years by this point, or at least 1,500 in the case of Moses. And yet they knew this was Moses and Elijah. So their eyes were opened in some regard to recognize them for who they are. That tells us a little something about what we will be like when we are glorified and we are in heaven. People will ask, will we recognize each other? Will we know each other? Will I look like I was 20? Or will I look like I was 98? What will we look like? Well, you'll look something like you look now and you'll look something different like you've never looked before. It's not unlike when you see someone for, who you haven't seen for a long time, you look at them and say, you know, you really look familiar. Oh my goodness, it's you. Why? Because there are things you recognize, but there are other things that are quite not right as you've remembered the individual. Similarly, we'll know each other, but we'll say, you know, you look really a whole lot better than you've ever looked before. <laughs> but it is you. And we'll say, you know, it really is me. Is it really that pretty good? You know. And so they recognize Moses and Elijah, though they've never seen him before. And we'll recognize one another and we'll recognize others, though we may never have seen them before. It's also neat that these two men are there representing the law and the prophets, which is another way of referring to the word of God, the Hebrew scriptures which testify of the one who is in their midst, the Messiah of Israel. And if that wasn't enough, there was the voice of God. And this is the third time God spoke, acknowledging Yeshua as Messiah. First time was at his immersion, when he said, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Earlier than this event, or maybe a little later than this event, Yeshua prays that the Father would glorify him and that he would be able, enabled to glorify the Father. And the Lord speaks, I have glorified you and I will glorify you. And then we have this passage. All three writers recorded that the Lord spoke and said, this is my beloved son. This is the unique Messiah of Israel. Remember what I've said before, some of you perhaps for the first time, but the word beloved is a unique Greek word that parallels the Hebrew word yachid, my unique son, my one of only kind son, my Messiah of Israel son is what it means. This is the one that you have been waiting for and therefore listen to him. I can't help but think of the great commandment. Hear, O Israel. Listen, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Listen to this one who is transfigured before you in all of his glory. What's also neat about this passage, in every instance, we didn't look at this, but if you reread the section, you'll see that preceding this passage, Yeshua has taken the disciples to Caesarea Philippi, and there he has asked them the question, who do individuals say that I, the son of man, am? And they say, some say you are Elijah. Some say you are Moses. Some say you are Jeremiah or one of the prophets. And then the Lord says to his disciples, but whom 
do you say that I am? And Peter stands up and says, you are the Messiah, the son of the living God. And the Lord says, flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my father who is in heaven. And then the Lord says, I'm going to Jerusalem and I'm going to be handed over to the Gentiles and I will suffer many things and I'll be crucified and I will die. And the third day I will rise again. That's when Peter says, far be it from you, Lord, that will never happen. And those horrible, ominous words to the chief disciple, he says, get behind me, Satan, for you do not have the interests of God. And Peter must have been stunned by such a thing to be said to him by the Messiah of Israel. And then we're told, Messiah is transfigured. What a marvelous thing that the suffering and the transfiguration of Messiah are spoken of in the same breath. Because the Messiah has come not only to reign, but to suffer and die. And indeed, until he suffered and died, he could not reign. For he must first come as a priest, providing atonement for our sin before he can come as a king to reign over his people and the nations of the world. But make no mistake, though he would suffer and die, that would not be the end of his story. For the story will conclude with him reigning and glorified and transfigured as he is so described in these passages. And so what does Peter do? This text tells us he was frightened, The text tells us he really didn't know what he was doing, but he felt he had to say something. But what he says is not really so terrible. What he says is that since Messiah is now transfigured in his glory, and since Messiah's coming in glory would occur when he came to reign, then it would be on this occasion that we would celebrate the Feast of Tabernacles. Remember, how Yeshua was ushered into Jerusalem when he suffered and died. When they said to him, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna to the son of David. What did they do? They took palm branches, placed them on the streets. For when the king of Israel comes, the tradition is whenever Israel's kings arrived, that they would be welcomed by the, by the waving of palm branches as the king is acknowledged as the king of Israel. Interestingly enough, in the book of Revelation, when John is transferred into the very presence of God, he sees individuals worshiping the Lamb of God with palm branches in their hands, waving them before him. That's because Sukkot celebrates the reign of the king. And thus, when Messiah enters Jerusalem, at the time of his death, and when he enters at the time of his reign, he'll be greeted with the palm branches acknowledging him as king. And so what is Peter saying? The king has arrived, and now is the time to adore him as such. 
Now is the time to worship and honor him as such. So should we build sukkah booths in honor of your coming as the king? And it's then that God's voice tells us, listen to him. Now is not the time of his reign. This was a foretaste so that you might be encouraged as you walk with him and follow him. Did he not say that he's coming to Jerusalem to suffer and to die? And that that is required before he comes to reign. Similarly, we are to acknowledge what he has done, that we might have life in him now. So that when he comes to reign, we will be ready to celebrate him and honor him as the king of all kings and the king of Israel. When the Jewish people celebrate the Feast of Tabernacles, they have these different fruits or vegetation in their hand. Usually all the members in the synagogue would carry them uh, into the synagogue to worship and praise him as they did in the temple. And the palm branches, all of these things are meant to symbolize different aspects of the land of Israel because God has given us a good land. And when the king comes to reign, he will restore the land as he will restore the people. And like I said, we're praying for rain to bring restoration to the land and we're praying for the outpouring of God's spirit that he would bring restoration to the people. The lulav branch or the palm branch reminds us of different aspects of the land between the various different blades of the palm branch. We're to be reminded of the valleys in Israel. As we look at the pointed sections of the palm branches, we're to be reminded of the hills and of the mountains that make up the beauty of the land of Israel. We have the myrtle and the willow branches on its side to remind us of the streams where these branches grow to remind us of the plains. The flat area reminds us of the plains and the desert region that characterizes the land of Israel. And then in our hand is the ethrog, which is a citron, sort of like a lemon, though it doesn't look like one, but it smells like one. It's really very beautiful. And it reminds us of the fruits of the land that the Lord has provided. When it is used in the synagogue, They hold all three, four of these elements. And the first thing they'll do is they'll face east. And they'll recite the blessing. Baruch atah Adonai, Eloheinu melech ha'olam, asher kidshenu b'mitzvotav v'tzivano, al nitilat lulav. Blessed are you, O Lord, our God, King of the universe, who has sanctified us by thy commandments and commanded us to wave the lulav branch. Baruch atah Adonai, Eloheinu melech ha'olam, shechiyanu v'kiyamanu v'higiyanu lazman hazeh. Blessed art thou, O Lord, our God, King of the universe, who has kept us in life and has sustained us and has enabled us to reach this season. Then they'll recite Psalm 113, 118. And as they do so, they'll shake the lulav and the ethrog. Hodu ladunai kitov. Then they'll shake it to the south. Olam chazdo. Then they'll shake it to the west. Hodu ladunai kitov, and then to the south, uh, to the north. Kilet olam chazdo. Give thanks to the Lord for He is good, for His mercy endures forever. 
Give thanks to the Lord for he is good, for his mercy endures forever. So you say, Yomer Yisrael na ki li'olam chazdo. Say Israel now. His mercy endures for his mercy endures forever. Yomer Adonai Yisrael na ki li'olam chazdo. Say Israel now. His mercy endures forever. And then they'll recite the psalm that says, Ana Adonai Hoshiana. Ana Adonai Hoshiana. Ana Adonai Hoshiana. We beseech you, Lord, save us now. And as they shake the lulav in all those directions, it's to acknowledge that the land that he has given to us, east and south, and west and north is a good land, a land flowing with milk and honey. And as wonderful as the land is that the Lord has given to us, even more so is the grand gift of salvation that he offers freely because his mercy endures forever. The reason the Lord has come into our world taken on humanity as we know he has, so as to suffer and die in our place, as the prophet said, and promises to come again, is so that we might find life in him and to find it more abundantly. That when he comes, we would rejoice in him and reign with him. That when he comes, we will see him in his glory and he will glorify us so that we will see him as he is. And that one day this mortal will put on immortality and this corruptible will put on incorruption because his mercy endures forever. Thus he showed his glory to his disciples. Why? Because his mercy endures forever. He told his disciples what he was doing and was about to do. And he tells us through the preservation of God's word. Because his mercy endures forever. And he has not yet come in his glory to reign as king. Because his mercy endures forever. And he's waiting for you if you have not yet embraced him as Messiah. Is that not amazing? When I think back to when I received Messiah into my life back in 1971, he was waiting for me. He could have come in 1970. He could have come in 1548. He could have come in 496. But he didn't. And because he didn't, and didn't come prior to 1971, I had opportunity to invite him into my life. And he hasn't come in 2012 yet. I don't know when he'll come. But he has not come yet because he's waiting for you and because he loves you and because he's not willing that any should perish 
but that all should come to repentance. Let's pray. Our God and Father, this Sukkot, this time when we celebrate the dwelling presence of God in our midst, this occasion when we remember that the Shekinah glory led the Jewish people through the 40-year wandering in the desert, that you dwelt with them by your Shekinah glory, that you dwelt with them in a temporary booth just as they dwelt in temporary booths. And you made yourself known to them as you provided the manna, as you provided the water, as you provided the direction, as you provided them with atonement that would temporarily cover their sin. When you provided them with individuals who loved you like Moses and Aaron and Joshua and Caleb, You were telling your people and all people who would read your word with an open mind that your mercy endures forever. And as weak and fragile and needy as we are, you are Adonai, you are the Lord who provides. And as the provider, you have met and you meet all of our needs. So we worship you and praise you. Might you open our hearts to receive you. That this Sukkot would be the Sukkot of Sukkots in which your dwelling presence takes up residence perhaps in someone's heart for the first time in their life. For those of us who know you, love you, and desire to walk with you, We pray this Sukkot would be a time of dedication and devotion where you permit us to have a glimpse, no matter how fleeting or brief, of your glory. That we would rejoice in what you have done in giving your life a ransom for many. And we would commit ourselves to following you, obeying you, serving you, in short, loving you with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. For it's in Messiah's name we pray.